Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try, and I try, and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, business and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards. Today I've caught Julian Cole. A planning pro in patterned shirts, Julian is a strategy consultant to leading brands like Uber, Apple, Facebook and Disney. Previously, he was head of comms planning at BBDO and BBH in New York. Until identifying a void of proper education for the role, he started the strategy finishing school. Putting an end to imposter syndrome, Principal Cole is whipping up world-class strategists by the bucket load. On the topic of AI, despite initially believing it was, and I quote, quite crappy, a jailbreak moment has led Julian to a more stimulating stance. He says, I haven't felt this level of excitement since social media. Welcome to the show, Julian. Thank you for having me. What a, what an amazing intro that was too. The... Uh... Pattern shirt planner. I'd I'd never thought of that of calling myself that, but maybe I'll be uh, stealing that one. Do it. It's yours. Right. Seven quick fires, Julian. Lisbon or Melbourne? Lisbon. Xbox or PlayStation? PlayStation. Insight or revelation? Revelation. Get to or buy? Get. <laughs> so there's always one ridiculous one. And uh, hallways or boardrooms? Uh, hallways right strategist skills resilience or reduction resilience and last one is a favorite mark ritson or pollard pollard that was far i think that's one of the quickest quick fires we've ever had that's both impressive and infuriating that i didn't trip you <laughs> no no it's it's all good um i like them and and uh a couple of couple of things that i was have been thinking about too well played regardless we always like to start the show julian then asking guests to describe their path to where they are now for various reasons i don't need to go into detail as to why that is because i've done that numerous times but it's rarely linear we find but what was your first ever job and then what was your first proper job in adland yeah so my first ever job was uh chemist rounds when that was a thing so in Australia, you would go along, um, would be senior citizens who'd need their uh, prescriptions uh, delivered to them. So I was on a bike delivering the prescriptions. And I think I got for like five hours work, it was $10. So um, it used the skills that I had. I really love maps. And this was back in the days when you had to have like paper maps or what we call mailways in Australia. So I was using that and riding around the, the streets. So that would have been my first job. And then my first uh, advertising job, I was working at a digital agency, did an internship there, and I was kind of helping out the account management team on uh, Adidas. They had Adidas as a client, and I was doing weekly trend reports. But then in the side 
a office, like this, just this small room. There was this other agency that was hot desking there and they were naked communications. And my eventual boss, um, Adam Ferrier was in there and he was a really interesting character and they were doing strategy all day. And I was like, oh my God, what is this job? This looks like the best job in the world. And he was a criminal psychologist turned strategist and it fascinated me. So that kind of led me down the path of strategy. I, I kind of volunteered for a job to work for him, was kind of desperate to work for him and understand this role of strategy. Nice. And roughly how old were you then, Julian? I was 20, I'd say. Okay. So in, in the preceding years, was there any plan to join this industry or did you have other kind of ambitions at that time? Yeah, so uh, my mother and father were a director and producer of television commercials. So advertising was kind of running through the veins, I guess. Mum was always pushing like, what are you doing for your future? How are you improving? Like, how are you going to get a job after school? And so she really made me quite proactive on that front. So I was looking, had had a number of internships before then, and this was kind of like the first one in advertising. Uh, apart from that, I was really um, interested in horse racing and uh, the history of horse racing. So I actually worked at the Australian Horse Racing Museum. So I definitely could have gone down that path. I kind of stopped gambling as much as I used to. I was like an underage gambler. And, um, but I think it stood me in, in good, good stead. Cause I, I think there's a lot of similarities between strategy and gambling, like both you're trying to find patterns, you're dealing with a lot of maths, um, trying to connect the dots. So I, I and, and ultimately there's no sure bet, right? Exactly. Yeah. You're just, you're, you're hedging bet, which is exactly what strategy is. So it's good. That's actually really interesting because there are lots of Aussie strategists I'm just kind of thinking of. And I, I say this both with the caveat of having, I think the majority of my family would certainly class themselves as Aussie, whether they legally are yet or not. I, I don't know. And one, one, uh, one of the first observations I've made in the last decade or so, I've been traveling out both to, uh, West, Western Australia and, um, Sydney is, is, just how prolific the uh, Aussie gambling scene really is. It's really big. It's kind of uh, kind of unfiltered, really. And I think in terms of sports gambling is probably the new one that's really taken off. And especially with young boys, the amount of the amount of uh, gambling ads on football and on on TV during sports games is just like offensive, um, and is a real problem. I think. I think uh, what kind of going to America where it was way more regulated. It was just like so interesting to come back to Australia and go, oh my God, this is like completely off tap and they're, they're kind of allowed to do anything. So yeah, I think it's very much in the veins, whether that's a positive or a negative is kind of up for discussion. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, t- I totally agree with you on um, how unhealthy it, it can seem in, in this country too. I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers at Australia. Um, so given you had that first stint with Adam Ferrier why what made you explore opportunities further afield like because I think there's probably lots of people out there who would quite happily work alongside Adam and see that as a you know almost like a, a, a culmination of their of their career rather than a starting point yeah so I actually got it this was back in 2008 and I'd written a thesis the year before on the uses and gratifications of 
um, MySpace. And then by the end of the year, it actually turned into Facebook for an honor thesis. And it was the first thesis on like social media marketing in Australia. And at the time, Naked actually decided to start a new agency, which was going to be a social media agency called The Population. And that was out of Sydney. And they offered me a job up there, a full-time job up there um, to help start up this agency and run it. Um, It was uh, way too early on in the piece for a social media agency. Like it just didn't go anywhere, um, unfortunately. Like it was 18 months or two years and then they kind of pulled the pin on it. But at the time it sounded like an amazing opportunity and kind of aligned with what I was doing. And I obviously gave that great opportunity to me for me to kind of ride the wave and probably get a bit for higher up in my career earlier on um, because it was an area that I could be um, kind of have a little bit of expertise in because it was just changing and evolving and it was so new. So that seemed like an opportunity that I couldn't turn down at the time and 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 was glad I did. And I, I guess it was back to your point, the introduction, you know, saying, oh, you're as excited about AI as social media. And, and for me, it was like I just really rode that social wave really early in my career and I did, did wonder. So I was, I'm really fortunate to that time. Yeah. And how were your first roles? How did you find and enjoy your first roles? Because we've interviewed several strategists and so many seem to have had a similar experience of sidestepping at some point, often early on from account management into into strategy roles. I guess my first role was like the first full-time paid role was a strategist. Like that's what my title was. And I think that that's a massive curse. It's like you don't want that title because with that title comes a lot of pressure I feel because you've got to be kind of the person in the room who knows what they're doing you're often by yourself and you're meant to be advising companies and telling them which way and the problem is is that um, I think Richard Huntington said this is that strategy is more like a trade than a profession we are not a professional organization there is no unlike law or accounting or being a doctor there's no accreditation you get you can call yourself a strategist at any time. And like a trade, usually you do an apprenticeship and you learn from someone, but that just doesn't happen in strategy. So I was a kind of self-defined, you know, uh, self-taught strategist. And I think that that's a shocking thing and it really impacts your career. So early on, I kind of built myself with confidence, would take other people's strategy decks, would try to dissect them, work out what they're doing and Google everything. And I kind of had this fake confidence about myself, but really I was struggling underneath. I had terrible imposter syndrome and then it only got worse when I went to America, um, feeling like a complete fraud uh, when I went to America because I was self-taught. And for those first five years of my career, I really think I was doing myself a disservice and and a lot of um, sleepless nights because I never got taught the fundamentals of strategy. And I think there's so many strategists and that's what I realized when I started consulting is like, oh my God, there are so many other strategists who are in my shoes because what I realized was I was very lucky. When I went to BBH, I got a fundamental traditional training in strategy. But for the vast majority of strategists, they don't get that opportunity. And so... um, 
I realized, oh, I'm not alone. Like everyone is dealing with this, has been self-taught and dealing with this imposter syndrome, which uh, thankfully now I, I, I look and it was a lot of shame and regret at the time um, and confusion. But now I look at it as such a positive because it led me to starting up the strategy, finishing school and giving people that fundamental training. Yeah, I've, I've um, it's interesting you use the word lonely there. And in, in, in our research, I've seen you describe the role of strategists as uh, you, you say they're often lone rangers. The it's 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 often um, well, it's a privilege in many ways, right, to look back and and recognise things like that with the benefit of hindsight. But do you think retrospectively? there were allies in the shape of other departments or people or do you think do you think there's something around how the role manifests itself kind of physically within the walls of an agency that that forces them into being lone rangers i think it's definitely down to the business structure there's there's a financial model that needs to make sense for a strategist to be brought on and if you look at it what is what is the role of the strategists, they've got a few documents that they really need to create. Um, but you look at the investment of time of a creative team, you know, once they come up with the idea, they then need to be um, guiding it and leading it to execution, which is a huge amount, majority of the work. So on any scope, you're probably sitting around 5 to 15%, maybe at best case scenario, but to a smaller company, maybe 20% um, of the retainer is going to be for strategy. So unless you get to a certain size business who's pumping out a lot of work, you can't afford to have two strategists on that piece of work. It just does not make financial sense. So I think the financial model of an agency is set up in a way that we don't need multiple strategists. And, um, you know, you stretch something, you know, you're usually working on like four or five different pieces of business. You're dipping in and out. You're not like an account team. Account team kind of sits on one you know, maybe sits on one piece of business and they're the account manager or account director or maybe two to three, but you're not like a strategist who's really stretched thin. So I think the financial model is what takes us there. But do you find allies in other areas? Hell yes, definitely, definitely. You know, account managers who are writing briefs for you, creatives who are helping you um, create the upfronts. It's a a team effort. So there's definitely, um, definitely other people helping you out. Yeah, and I, I totally agree. I think by design, it, it, it's there is a lot that works against you. I was going to ask, um, I'll ask it now, I was planning on doing it slightly later, but in one of your course descriptions, you reference a blindfolded strategy misfit who has never been taught the fundamentals, someone who's looking to gain confidence in, in the process and, and role. And, and I was going to ask if these describe a younger Julian Cole, but I'm not going to ask that now because I think you've answered it. But, but is that... Is that perhaps like a consistent feeling that you've observed since identifying that void that exists? Yeah, definitely. I feel like that was the start of my career was blindly going through and just fingers crossed, you know, being scared in those meetings, whether I get the right information or getting found out. I definitely think that was happening. And, you know, again, I say it's a blessing and a curse. I feel like so fortunate to have rolled into a strategy role first job off the off the rank you know my first job was a strategist but that also hurt me in a lot of ways and i think the big thing for me is um imposter syndrome and confidence are two sides of the same coin right 
And the thing about strategies, as we talked about at the start, is like you need to have complete conviction in your work that you're doing the right thing and you need to convince a whole team. It's subjective. At the end of the day, strategy is subjective. You're just trying to pick the right answer. So if you don't have that confidence and the team around you, whether that's the clients or the creatives, don't feel your confidence in your answer, how are you ever going to be a good strategist? You're going to get labeled. And this is what I sometimes got labeled at the start of my career when I was not strong enough was you're just a deck monkey. You know, you're just doing the strategy up front. So that's all we need. You just justify the idea, do a bit of post-rationalization here. And that's all your role is. And that's what happens when you've got imposter syndrome, when you're not confident in the strategy, you need that strategy. You need that confidence to actually excel in this job. And I noticed that once I really had proper confidence, not that kind of fake confidence where you're the fake bravado, totally changes the game in, in terms of your strategy. And that only can happen when you actually know what you're doing and, you, and you've been taught those skills. Yeah, well said. I think also you're you're not helped by the fact that, it, it, yes, there's an element of conviction and confidence, which of course is at play, especially when what you're trying to sell is subjective. Um, but equally, unlike in potentially other areas of, a, of, a, of a, an agency's makeup, you need a lot more time on your side to demonstrate that your strategy is right and has, has perhaps worked and hit its objectives, whereas other departments perhaps can demonstrate, I don't know if we're talking about accounts, maybe they can demonstrate a uh, procurement result by way of savings or whatever it might be. But a strategist actually hasn't got that luxury of immediately being able to show that an objective decision is right. Yeah, and and the funny thing is, is like early on in my career, I was working on glasovitamin water and we'd done this campaign for them and we were stoked. We were over the moon with it. We we're like, oh my God, this is done so well. And we went to the client and we were ready for the kind of celebration high fives afterwards. And they were like, oh no, we, we actually think this did shockingly. Like this, we, we thought we were going to get even bigger numbers than this. And it shows to me, it, you don't even have to have the right results, but you actually also have to be on the same page as the client. Like if, and it was a clear error there, but you can look at the same number and it, in your head, it can be correct, but it can be wrong to them as well. So I think it's even harder than accounting because you need to ground everyone on that same page as well. And that imposter syndrome, I think is felt through, you know, all departments, right? And one of the only consistent points I've concluded when talking to people who have faced it, you know, as have, as have I, is that the, there's, there's a kind of negative correlation going on. It's often the most talented, bright people who feel it. It's a, it's a bit like, this is, this is quite maybe stretching the point slightly, but I was talking to a new dad recently, not that I'm an, an old withered seasoned dad, but I have two kids, the eldest is eight. And he was really concerned about how good a dad he was being. And the point that I made to him was that the, the mere fact he was worried about being a shit dad to me suggests he's probably not because shit dads just go on being shit dads and don't really pause to think about how shit they might be. So it's, it's uh, yeah, it's a funny one. And that, that whole idea of imposter syndrome is almost doubly unfair. Yeah, I love that. That's a good one for me to remember because I'm still, I'm still in the early, early years here. Uh, I'm 18 months in. Ah, wow. So, uh, and and have those same go. questions. Am I like, am I a good dad? Am I a good partner? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, good they, to I remember. Mean, yeah, no, definitely. I think it's important. I think it's, and I, and I, and I do think that whilst my 
argument is is highly flawed and based on like you know a sample size of one i definitely think there's there's something there that suggests that you know if you're thinking about whether you're doing something quite well enough then actually it shows that you care and if you care about something then there's a lot of positive positive signs anyway at what stage then talking about imposter syndrome what stage did that start did you start to kind of release that feeling you obviously went to the us and you said if anything it got worse yeah but presumably at some stage whether it was during um your roles uh, at one of the agencies in new york or or afterwards you, you must have taken part in some form of training or education that allowed you to kind of let that go slightly yeah correct it was at bbh so it was a year into the role i, I just felt so lucky i i got this role as strategy director at uh, BBH and I was really looking after the digital and social team and I think my boss had brought me on because of my non-traditional and unconventional experience but then here I was at a very you know one of the top strategy agencies in America in in probably the world and I just felt so far outside my depth I just was like I don't know what I was doing but instead of like putting my hand up and saying that from day one, I thought I had to, you know, live up to the the title and I pretended. And it was only after a year I realized, oh, actually I'm plateauing my career out here if I don't ask and put my hand up for help. And I told my boss that, and then he helped me get that fundamental training in strategy, kind of teaching me the ropes, teaching me the fundamentals, which now I take on and yeah, I can really pinpoint to that moment and that's when I kind of made that leap. I went on to lead a whole department there and then grow another department at BBDO. So that definitely is the time I can notice that the imposter syndrome started to go away a little. Never leaves you, but no. definitely a way to deal with it. No, and there might be, a, you know, going back to that last point, I probably laboured that there's probably a very small, healthy amount of imposter syndrome that everyone should carry with them. Yeah. Um, as long as it doesn't become debilitating is it easy to spot a trained strategist versus an untrained strategist do you think or is that the difference between a confidence and an unconfident person uh definitely is easy it, it's just a couple of questions and you can tell uh the one that i always like is if you can ask them what's the strategy and they're showing you a 67 page deck then they don't have a strategy but if they can say it in a sentence or put it into a paragraph then you know they've got something there. And then my thing is, is like, you just need a clear definition of like, what is strategy? What is an insight? What is an idea? And if they can answer those questions, they've usually understood the fundamentals or have their own model of how those pieces uh, relate. Yeah, I, I, funny enough, I was going to use a quote of yours around that same point in the introduction and I cha changed it last minute because AI is something I want to kind of get into and have a bit more of a positive spin on. Uh, and I think you conclude that point previously by saying all you have is a confused client, right? Yep, correct. So it's interesting. It's Yeah, the AI thing for me is a sign as well um, of like how well do you know strategy because the thing about it is is with strategy, if you understand the fundamentals of strategy, then you can really understand how to use AI to get the results. So the one that I always like to um, talk about is this, can I talk about this now? Yes, go for it. So the one I, I like to talk about is insights, right? So having a clear definition of what an insight is, which to me 
is a revelatory truth that makes you look at the problem from a new angle. So the pieces there are truth, so it has to be true. Revelatory, it's got to reveal something. So you've got to have an actual response. So if you just nod your head, that's not an insight. It's like it has <laughs> to like give you a visual response or a, something has to happen. You know, that's why comedians talk about insights because they say the line, the ex- set the expectation, then they break it and reveal something that you hadn't thought of before. So they deal in insights, but it needs to have that revelation. So you need to have a visual res- visceral response. And then the second part of that is it needs to um, look at the problem from a new um, angle. It either gives you a new solution to the problem or it reframes the problem. So when it came to AI, I think a lot of strategists, what they did is they said, oh, this is exciting new tool. Let me, you know, plug away and see what it can do. And you go and you ask it, what is an insight? And because the internet has been filled with junk answers of what an insight is, um, an insight to them is just like an observation or a fact. So the one I uh, used was like Hilton Hotels, right? You say, what is an insight about Hilton Hotels? It comes back and says, Hilton Hotels has 400 hotels. They've got a um, around the world. Another insight is they've got a sustainability project that you know, they're going to reach zero carbon efficient, carbon emissions by 2030. Those are all not insights. They're just like observations. So once you realize that, you can go, okay, I'm not going to ask it directly for an insight. You have to jailbreak it. So for me, what I do is go, okay, a revelation is a new way of looking at a problem. So what you want to do is ask it, how does everyone see the problem right now? So ask, what are the cliches about the hotels just tell me cliches about hotels and you know all these i usually say give me 10 cliches so i'll come up with one which is like a home away from home you know you're like oh, i've heard it, heard that a million times and then what i do is because i don't want how everyone else sees it i want the complete opposite of that i say write the complete opposite of that statement and they're like a place that feels nothing like home and you're <laughs> like huh that like, and then there'll be another 10 other ones, which are complete junk, but a place that feels nothing like home is actually interesting. Cause it's true. Like a hotel at the end of the day does feel nothing like home. And when you think about somewhere like Hilton, the biggest competitor is Airbnb. Who's trying to go after the whole home angle. Well, times you don't want to be at home. Like you want, you know, home is all these problems, you know, a renovation you haven't finished screaming children. Yeah. Yeah. The miss speaks the new dad. Uh, you know, all this <laughs> So it's like a hotel saying that they're nothing like home. Actually, that's really good. And that's where I think things like AI can really help. And it only that you can only get there once you've got a really strong foundation at your gut of how to get to an insight. Because if you don't know what an insight is and you just ask um, ChatGPT, tell me some insights about my brand it's going to give you absolute trash and it's and you're probably smart enough to you know know that that's not right but it's when you understand those fundamentals i think that's when you're kind of can be a great strategist and understand how to use these tools as well i think nothing like home as well it's also just interesting right like sometimes you can hear a line much like a comedian would 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 play on words as you say or discover an insight it's just interesting and it's not something because it's not a cliche because it's literally the opposite it's therefore not heard particularly often Therefore, it's interesting. I um, 
I, I see there's there's a great line where you, in an interview recently, you said, I like to use AI as you use salt. And um, it got me thinking that, and I know you didn't mean it by this, by it, but we have at home the most like fucking ridiculous kitchen gadget. Is it a gadget? It's called a Thermomix. I'm not sure if you've ever seen one. We nice. bought it secondhand before anyone judges me on this, but it is the most ridiculously, I think new they're like, I don't know, two grand or something. We got asked for a few hundred quid because it's, it's very old and, and secondhand, as I say. But to me, it's the AI of kitchen gadgets because it can do almost every process you could possibly think of. And for us, cooking from our youngest daughter who has an alarming amount of, you know, often quite severe allergies, we need to we need to really understand what she's eating um, in order to kind of manage that, which is why we bought it and it's and it's fantastic. But it won't do everything for you. It doesn't you can't just say to it, make me a chicken curry and a chicken curry will magically appear on a plate. But you can use it for certain parts of that bigger process and it makes you so much more effective, so much more efficient. And it's just absolutely wonderful. And I wondered if in the same way, I'm really pushing this metaphor on you here, Julian, but I wonder if the same way AI is just, it's more a case of people understanding which parts it can do loads of amazing heavy lifting. And, and, and perhaps like in, in, in that uh, term jailbreak that you've used that I really enjoyed reading about in our research, it's almost like you realize that actually you need to ask it something different to what people by default are asking AI to do. And that's where the value is. It's that ex- exploratory kind of stance that we all should take on new tools. We interrupt this podcast to announce that we will never interrupt this podcast with ads. Ads that awkwardly nudge you to contact the... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, and I think the way that I use the salt analogy is that you use it at the start and the finish but never in the middle when you're testing yeah and as you said in the exploratory stage it honestly it doesn't matter where you get an insight from it really doesn't matter you can get it from anywhere like it it, I, i hate when purists are like a strategy purists are like oh the only place you're getting it is if you're interviewing the consumer or in the in the room with them that's bullshit that is such bullshit Insights can come from anywhere. The thing that can't come from anywhere is how you validate an insight. You, you cannot use AI to validate the insight. And I think that's the big the big thing for me. It's like you have to put that back in front of people and get a response. Like we had the discussion about Hilton Hotels. Actually, the home away feels like nothing like home. That's, you know, you want those responses. You need to talk to people about it. And I think this is a mistake. A lot of people hear, oh, you can't get an insight from AI. They're thinking I'm taking it all the way through the process where it's, you know, gold stamped. This has been approved. No, but it can help me get there. It's like one of the other great ones that I had was an insight, which was just from a Amazon review. Um, I was working on a competitor to Roomba vacuum cleaners and I got, I had one of my junior strategists just pull, um, some Amazon reviews, just doing a bit of desk research before. And the the statement was, your Roomba's kind of like your drunk roommate cleaning. And I was like, hang on a minute. That's like, it's hilarious. And it's actually very true. If you think about a Roomba going in that very erratic pattern around the room, you're like, <laughs> yeah, that kind of would be like my drunk roommate trying to clean. And 
to me, it was just like a beautiful sentence, which completely unlocked that brand because they'd, they had a GPS tracking of your room. So you GPS track it and it'd be very methodical in the way it would go through your room. But that insight works so well. And it wasn't me going off and doing, you know, hours upon hours of research. It was literally from an Amazon review. Uh, so I think that AI is the same. Don't be afraid to get an insight from there. It's like the same as social. It's pretty much just a massive social listening tool. It's just sucked the whole internet up into it and can, can be a tool, but it's a sidekick. It's not replacing us. It's just adding to it. Yeah. So, so do you think that the overall consensus as you see it from strategists and maybe, maybe we should leave the purists out of this sample size, but do you think people are slowly understanding how to how to use AI for, for best effect? I I don't know. I don't I don't see it being mass adoption. And there's and look, this is the thing: is there's the hype cycle where yeah. everyone tries to make it do everything when they first hear about it or when you first start playing with the tools. And I, granted, I'm guilty of this too. Like I wanted to do every single thing and find everything it can help me with, but then you get to a stage after a week or a month where you realize, okay, actually, what are the jobs that I do all the time where this could help out? And it kind of refines and peels back to what it will be helpful for. So the other side for me is I find AI super valuable for tightening up sentences and giving me visual language over verbal words at the very end of a strategy deck or a presentation that I'm doing. And so that I continue to use it for time and time again. It's just like someone to bounce the idea off, give me a new analogy for this, give me a different way to look at it, give me a celebrity analogy, um, give me more visual words. That, that, oh my God, it's so helpful for that. But I don't know if all strategists are doing that or not. And how many of the kind of fundamental things that you practice and certainly that you teach in, in, the, in the finishing school, do you think are a kind of no-go area for AI? Like what are the fundamentals regardless of, of AI? Totally. So the fundamentals that will never be is that middle section, which is where you're validating anything, where you're validating strategy or an insight. That needs to happen in qualitative, quantitative, in meetings with people. You cannot replace that step. You need to be... Um, you need to have that analysis that cannot go away. And I think you need to be the editor at the end of the day. If you're, if you're signing off something and an AI has written that for you, good luck. Good luck. <laughs> I, I think that's a massive error. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, and lastly, I, I need to jump to listen to questions, but lastly, I noticed on your course modules, there's a few coming soon. And they really interested me. And actually, I'm really pleased to see them because they include diplomacy, management, selling strategies. So it's not about doing it, it's about selling and bringing others on board with you. How much of that do you think was the journey early on that perhaps made you feel that imposter syndrome? Like how crucial is that to strategy? Because I find it fascinating that in so many roles in the world and industry that we work in, so much of it isn't actually doing the role. It's 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 bringing people on the journey with you or it's the some people talk about I know Colin Lewis likes to talk about a game of chess being business but actually there's a whole other game going on under the table it's like that other stuff right yep. so 
the those three section three modules I've actually been able to build out as well. So, which is fantastic. But the reason those three modules were so important is actually it was later in my career that I realized the importance of it. So, when I became the head of strategy, understanding how to do diplomacy or you know how how do you navigate office politics was really important and you you mentioned it at the very start or, or kind of nodded to it um of one of the most important things that i learned which was uh when i was at bbdo one of the things that i do is i got a lot of white papers out which helped position the agency as a little bit more progressive we had this reputation of being an old kind of dusty tv agency where we weren't making work like that we needed to show we were actually more progressive and we were so i had a whole white paper which was looking at um digital ads um it was actually on banner ads it was it it sounds a bit boring but it was actually phenomenal like a really phenomenal paper that one of my strategists had worked up and i ended up taking it to uh my bosses and i think this strategist had worked on it for about 20 hours, 30 hours, and I took it to the CEO and the managing director. And in that meeting, I learned one of the most important lessons of my life because what happened is this report was too detailed, too tech detailed, um, which was my mistake. But the more important thing was, was I noticed in that room, after I kind of presented it, I saw them look at each other. And there was this moment when both of them, I realized, they didn't really get it. It was kind of a little bit too much in the weeds, which is always a problem. But what happened was they erred on the side of caution and they both said, you know, I think we just should shelve this one for six months. Yeah, 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 I agree. Yep, that's a good idea. And they kind of decided in there that, no, we're not going to go with this. And what I learned was this really important skill. If you're ever presenting a new piece of research or you're doing something new, Never do it to two senior people at once. You should only ever present something new to one senior person at once because what you want to do is build consensus as you go up. So if I sent to the managing director, had a one-on-one with them, quelled all their fears, kind of explained everything, I reckon I would have sold that in I would because they would have been in the room and they would have been able to show and give that confidence to push that on. And that's just something that's not taught. Um and so I really wanted to teach those lessons that I've learned. The other one that you were referring to earlier, hallways over boardrooms. And that comes from Nemawashi, which is the Japanese corporate culture of you get everything signed off beforehand and then the meeting is just, that's just for a presentation. You want to actually build a coalition before you actually go into that meeting. And so you always should have the conversations in hallways rather than presenting it for the first time in the boardroom. So I thought those skills of diplomacy were really important. Um, They just weren't getting talked about. And then the other part of that is if you get a role of head of strategy, no one ever teaches you about scoping out work or how work gets scoped. And, you know, um, whether it's top down or bottom up scoping, I never knew the difference between the two and, and how you actually did that. And it was only after being in the role and, you know, it took me six months to get ready to kind of get up to speed, but I lost six months of where I could have been hiring way more people, but because I didn't understand how to sell strategy and then how to read a retainer and how to do uh, bottom-up scoping for a retainer, 
I didn't know any of that stuff. So I needed to learn, uh, when I did learn it, I was like, damn it, I, someone needs to teach this. So that's why I kind of made those last three chapters of management, selling strategy and diplomacy for actually people who are at the top of their career. Perfect. Yeah, no, it's great. And as I say, it's, it's certainly something I've come to realize over time. Um, even to be honest, even Julian, the frustration, anyone who's worked in any creative department will have sat on and stewed on ideas that never saw the light of day that they still firmly believe in. So just actually the practice of selling ideas in is something that's just not really considered. People think that just having the idea is, is, is enough, but it's, it's only half of the job, right? Cool. I'm going to go to listener questions now. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names is notoriously fraught with danger. Uh, but we've got two for you, starting with Eve. I was listening to the episode with Andrew Tenzer and Ian Murray recently, and Ian said, frankly, you're lucky if you have a handful of decent insights in your career. And the idea that you can churn out half a dozen by lunchtime is a really debilitating way to work. So Eve's added, what is an insight to you? And do you think the industry is hindering strategists by putting such emphasis on the idea of an insight? Do you know the crazy thing about insights is that it only became a big thing in the late 80s in advertising. Before that, insights wasn't such like a hot word and hot button word, but I feel like we've got more and more obsessed with insights. So the thing about insights is I think they're super valuable and the insight will either get solved by you or by the creative team. And often the creative team will kind of beat your insight. That's the interesting thing about the Snickers work was the actual insight and strategy really came from the creative team. Um, you know, David Lubars, who's the creative chief creative officer, saw the line, you know, you when you're hungry, and he kind of said, that's it. That is what this whole thing is about. And it kind of got retro, it kind of fitted in and the insight kind of came off that. And that's what I think a lot of strategists worry about is they feel like they're, they're the ones who have to find the insight. And I don't think that's the case. I also think, I, I totally agree. I don't, I don't think it's right that you're going to be able to find 10 insights on a brief. But what you can do is write a really clear problem statement. And, you know, when we look at, you know, the creative brief, the get who to buy, that doesn't have any box which says the insight. It has four boxes on it. One is the target consumer, the get, the who, which is the consumer problem, the two, which is the consumer goal, and then the buy, which is the single-minded proposition. There's no box on there that says you need an insight. The most important box on there is the who statement, the consumer problem, because that is the most important thing because often your two and buy your buy statement, your single-minded proposition will actually get beaten by the creative team. They might come up with a new area. But what they shouldn't beat you at is probably the consumer problem. Yes. And do you think of the second part of Eve's question I particularly like about there being too much emphasis on the idea of an insight? But I mean, I'll change that slightly. Do you think there's too big an expectation or measure that people are expecting those who work in strategy to just churn out insights, insight after insight? I think that there... I think the problem for me is there's not a clear definition of insight or I'll, at least when I was practicing, I didn't really know what an insight was and I didn't know what I was looking for. And I think that's the biggest problem. And I, I, I see that still with a lot of strategists. 
if you get to the heart of it, it's like, I don't actually know what you mean when you say insight. And that's why there's so much abuse of the term and, and kind of having that clear definition really helps. Um, yes, it's really hard to get to one, but once you know what you're looking for, so much easier, so much easier. Yeah, I mean, semantics plays all sorts of, you know, causes all sorts of problems in our industry, right? And, and I think the way that you described it a, um, as a revelation, a new angle or reframing something, I think to me is... is is sufficient enough right it's 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 easy to understand and actually you can do that without it claiming to be the be all and end all which i think is often the expectation that a strategist is just going to kind of sit down and lay a lay an insight egg that (laughs) blows everyone away the other big thing for me is um the relationship with the creative director so if you see if you believe that the creative director also will probably crack an insight or can crack insights. The idea of bring them earlier on in the process is probably your biggest asset to fix this. So a pre-briefing of, hey, here's where I'm at. Here's what I think is interesting. Not make yet some big grand reveal in the actual briefing, um, but running it past them earlier on is going to save you that um, extra pressure in that moment where you've got to deliver the insight statement if you've kind of run it past them a couple of times and got their buy-in um, beforehand. Again, a bit of washy on that of doing the hallways before the briefing, um, but I think it's essential. Yeah, I like that hallways um, point you made earlier. Anything to make a, a meeting just a formality to me, I'm, I'm, I'm all for. Yeah. So uh, second question, this is kind of, I suppose, touching on semantics a little bit and also probably a, a, a product, the, the purists that, that we uh, mentioned earlier. But Tom says, I've heard people say strategy is a plan. I've also heard people say it isn't. <laughs> what is it? Strategy to me is a clear definition of strategy is a three, two, one, or what I call the three, two, one strategy. Strategy has three pieces to it. It's got a goal and then a problem in the way of the goal and then a solution. And we only need that if not the whole organization knows where we're going and what the problem is and where we're solving. If you've got, you know, a small company and there's only one problem, you don't need a strategy. You know, everyone knows which way we're going. But when you've got multiple, that's when we need it. So that's the three, the three pieces. You've got two, which is two points of view. So you've got the point of view of the business and then the consumer. And with creative advertising, our problem, our business problem is often around sales or trying to grow in a different area. But that's not what we come out with with the creative or the consumer problem. So we need to be able to understand those three pieces. What is the um, problem and goals for both the business and also the consumer? Then finally... The one is it needs to live on one paragraph. So that is what I I define as a strategy. So if I was to write a strategy right now, I would start with, you know, let's say Spotify, listen like you used to campaign. The business problem there was Gen X's weren't paying enough money. um, We're spending a lot of money on music, but weren't spending a lot on, um, on actual platforms on streaming platforms so the idea there is the goal would be to increase sales by five percent increase market share by five percent um by 2022 now when we look at that that's not enough information for an advertising strategy what we need to know is what's the consumer problem and consumer goal so the biggest problem they realized was 
actually they, you know, Gen Xers think that music's, you know, streaming services are for just cool young kids. And the bigger problem there they realized was that when you turn 34, you start listening to more older music than newer music. So music that came out in the last year. So they were having this kind of relevance crisis. It's like, I used to be the cool person who knew all the cool bands, don't anymore. And so their problem is that their their goal is they want to feel rele- still feel relevant. Like it's not a great feeling that. So the whole Spotify campaign was like, listen like you used to, which was celebrating and showing that kind of music is quite cyclical and you're still very relevant. So they had like a poster which was 1998, Spice Girls are on tour. 2018, Spice Girls are still on tour. Um, you know, uh, the, another one was like... Uh, 24, 19, you know, 1998, 24-hour party people, uh, 2018, two to four-hour party people. So, again, all those ads were helping to show people that they're still relevant today, but the consumer problem and business problem are totally different. So, we've got our, like, three, two, one there, like, um, the business problem, the goals and the solution, and we're making that work for both the business and the consumer side of things. And you can get that down to a paragraph. Perfect, perfect. They also had that great UB40 red, red wine one as well. I, I love that one. Yeah, they, they had some ripper lines. I can't believe they didn't keep going with that because I thought that was really fantastic. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said I'd only do two, but given you loved your planning pro and pattern shirts intro, we have had a question from Simon Robinson, um, and he asks, where do you get your shirts from? Oh, Lazy Oaf. So the brand, it's a UK brand, and they're, they're fantastic. The story behind it is is that when i kind of went to america they started asking me to wear kind of like i love t-shirts and they started to ask me to wear button-up shirts to meetings and kind of you got to start dressing a little bit formal and i was like i feel like i'm losing my identity a little bit here so i was like where can i get like and my my i think my fashion style's always been offensive to the eyes like offensive (laughs) um it's your, it's your like, words not mine yeah it's like it's so ugly if it's if it's so ugly it's good that's kind of where i said it. it's got to be so ugly that's good and so um for me i was like i i found lazy oaf and they kind of for me fit the brief and the great thing about it is it's like you wear when i was wearing shirts like that it just kind of like makes everyone in the room a little bit more comfortable because there's something stupid that you can kind of comment on and if i'm the you know, the person with the stupid shirt on and they want to ask questions or say that that looks like a funny shirt or a good shirt, then I'm happy to play that role because it kind of takes the pressure down in these kind of formal environments. And it allowed me to kind of at least stay true to who I was. And I really love the brand too. They're, they're amazing stuff. So, yes. Nice. We'll, we'll link to Lazy Oaf then in, in, yeah. in this listing. I, uh, I'm glad there's another So Ugly It's Good person out there. My um, One of my nieces has recently bought her very first flat in Sydney and she sent me a photo of the bathroom and I said exactly that, that it was so, so utterly rank that it's gorgeous. Like it's just, it's the ugliest bathroom you've ever seen, but it just made me so happy to see it and I just couldn't work out how whether I loved it or hated it. I so love that's great. that. It's great. Great. So the, the, the final part of the interview, Julian, is our four pertinent poses, starting with what advice would you give to your younger self? I think the advice is, is like ask for help earlier and ask for kind of 
to be taught the fundamentals of strategy. I think I had too many sleepless nights not putting up my hand and asking for education, like to be taught how to do strategy. And the, the stupid thing was, was like, I now look back at it, like all the companies I worked for, every company has this, is like an education budget, but we never use it. No one ever uses these budgets. And so for me, I was like, there were so many opportunities I could have helped myself and I really didn't. I wasted, you know, five years of my career when I could have been feeling more confident, sleeping better <laughs> and all the rest. So that's probably what I'd tell myself. No, I see you've also, I love the fact you've got facility on your website to, to help people secure some of that funding, right? With your employee reimbursement area. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, that's the thing. I was like, so silly. It was like such an easy move. And so I was like, let me just remove all the barriers I can. This, Yeah, good answer. Um, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? I think we would banish, I think this is a big one that will never happen, but banish the divide between media and creative. I think we'd get such better work if we could be closer together again. And I kind of like feel like I was in a bad generation because I wish I was in the 80s where media and creative work together because I think the creative ideas would have been so much more powerful. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. One of the best quotes on that I've ever seen as uh, when, when media and creative were kind of split was uh, unsurprisingly Rory Sutherland saying it was a bit like cutting up a Sudoku box and asking individual departments to, to, to solve the number. I love that. So good. Uh, are there any books that you can recommend to our listeners? I think I love uh, Mark Pollard's book, Strategy is Your Words. That's been a really good one for me. Um, the other one would be Made to Stick, I feel like, was a classic that was really good. And then um, Trust Me, I'm Lying, Stories of a Media Manipulator by Ryan Holiday. This is an early Ryan Holiday. Most people know him for his books on stoicism. But he had a wild um, story at the beginning of his career working for American Apparel. Um, more of a historical book of, an, of a time um, of the internet, but a great read. That's, um, I'm pretty confident saying that Trust Me I'm Lying has never come up before in 127-ish episodes. Fantastic. I love the title. Yeah, it's a it's a good one. And uh, I think he's actually trying to bury the book because he's definitely <laughs> become a different type of person since that book launched. Is it like an old, an old tweet or something that he wants yeah, to get? Yeah, I feel like it, if it was an old tweet, he'd be deleting that one straight away because it's very revelatory, I'll tell you that. Brilliant. I'm going to check that out. Awesome. And then strategies, your words and made to stick have both quite rightly come up before, but they'll, they'll be linked to in this episode too. Excellent. And then number four, we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honor, depending on your view, to our guest who has to give their reason why. So would you dedicate this episode? I would dedicate the episode, I think, to Richard Huntington, um, because he really opened my eyes to insights. And I remember reading his blog post and the, the whole wording around revelation I really put down to him. Uh, so I'll, I'll dedicate it to him, Richard. Amazing. Well, um, Richard's a past guest, and I think we spoke about him on the last episode as well. So Richard's getting far too much airtime. He uh, he also introduced me to World Swimming, so I've got a bone to pick to, with him because um, 
I think that's made me quite ill sometimes. But uh, otherwise, this episode is very proudly dedicated to Richard Huntington. Oh, I remember why I brought him up on the last episode. It was a tip he gave when he was on the podcast a couple of years ago specifically to strategists who if they were going on a journey on a you know a long journey on a train or a plane or, or whatever to just buy a completely random magazine to uh flick through on the way i love that it's good advice yes good advice it is good advice it is good advice um so everyone listening can head over to calltoaction.co we'll include links to everything we've discussed to the books, to strategy is your words made to stick. Trust me, I'm lying. To Julian's finishing school. How else can our listeners get more Julian Cole? Um, wherever they they consume their content, really. Uh, so I'm on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. So you'll you'll find me on one of those platforms as Julian Cole. You're everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> amazing well they'll all be included in in the listing uh listen julian thank you so much it's been um, i've really enjoyed this it's been a, a real pleasure to chat thanks for having me on and finally a thank you to everyone listening if you've enjoyed this episode please do share and review the pod keep your questions and guests requests coming in to get in touch it's easy to find gasp online or you can email the mouthful that is call to action at gasp dot agency I can't get no call to action I can't get no call to action but I try and I try and I try I can't get no call to action Oh, I can't get no call to action Yeah, hey, hey, 